Well, good morning. How are y'all today? Very good. My name is Sean Sivils, as Pastor Scott already introduced me. Um, just very excited, honored to be here this morning. Uh, just blown away at God's faithfulness. And uh, Aaron and I have enjoyed the, the past four months here with you guys and getting to know you and truly honored to be a part of this church and this community and uh, looking forward to getting out this way. Um, I told Tara this morning that, uh, you know, not having sheets meant that you could be more Christ-like because the son of man had no place to lay his head. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that counseling is really my forte, but, uh, you know, just thought I'd put that word out there. I am 48 years old. Uh, Aaron and I have two sons. Uh, our oldest son is 26. His name's Preston. And my youngest son is 24. As of yesterday, he and his wife, Jonathan and Delaney, live in Buda. And Preston and Sarah live in Corpus Christi. As of about five months ago, uh, we are grandparents. We have a granddaughter, Isabella. And uh, she is the most adorable grandchild on the planet. So uh, I, I, just what I've been told. Um, we, we are enjoying life and, and really just blessed where we're at. I remember about 10 years ago, 12 years ago with Preston, my oldest son, one day we were at church and, uh, we were getting ready to leave for the, for the day. And my, my youngest son, Jonathan had already ran off to lunch with some of his friends and, and Preston was with us. And he, he was just that kind of guy that just ran it alone. He, he had friends, but he just chose to, to run life alone. There was really two main passions that he had in his life at the time. Uh, now the third passion has trumped everything else, and that's uh, daughter. But uh, the two passions of his life at that time was sports and history. Um, the, the child was either going to be an ESPN analyst or a history dissertation person, and uh, just could not get enough of it. One day, he um, was watching the History Channel and uh, was just very frustrated and put the remote down and he said, they've got to come out with some more documentaries, Dad. I was like, son, you've, you've watched them all. They, you're just going to have to wait for some more history to take place, you know? Um, I can't help you there. But uh, on this particular day, we were leaving church, and he asked me about Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte, Bonaparte, I don't know, okay? That, that's about as much. He's a French guy. That's as much as I know about Napoleon. And, and I'm, I'm not uh, belittling... Uh, political science or history or any of that. I'm not. I, I am fascinated by it, love it and all that. But my son's passion was way beyond mine. And so um, he began this dialogue, which was not a dialogue. It was a information download of Napoleon. And it lasted, I'm not exaggerating. This is no preacher speak here or anything. It lasted for an hour. As we got to the steakhouse, that's what we call Whataburger in my family. When we, when, <laughs> when we got to Whataburger, it was like, Okay, 30-second timeout, and he, he didn't talk to the, the person taking the order. He would always talk to his mom and say, you know, one and number two, blah, blah, blah. And so that was the only timeout that we had in the entire hour of this discourse on Napoleon Bonaparte. This morning, I don't know if you're a history lover or a political science major. Maybe you are, maybe not so much. But this morning in the passage that we're going to look at, Matthew chapter 2, there's some history and some politics and some geopolitical stuff going on. And I'm, I don't want to share it this morning to bore you because that's just not my intention. But it is kind of necessary for, for what we're going to be looking at. And so hang with me here. 
really today's passage is a scripture of, of a story of, of three different groups of people. Uh, it's, it's one of the few passages in the Bible that we have that talks about Jesus's childhood. Um, but today we're going to look at three different groups of people and three different responses, three different heart responses to Jesus. The first one that we're going to look at is Herod the Great. Herod had a heart that opposed Jesus and sought to kill him. The religious leaders are the second group that we're going to briefly look at this morning. And uh, they were a group that had no room in their hearts for Jesus. And they were completely indifferent and apathetic to the presence of God before them. And the last group that we're going to look at this morning is the Magi. Uh, which means wise men. And we're going to talk about who they were, but they were a group of guys that heard and believed. And they made a sacrifice to search for a king. They were a group that saw and experienced, and they were, had hearts that paused and worshiped. And so this morning, as, as we dive in, I just I want to ask you the question, the theme, the title of the day, uh, as we're looking for Christmas, what will you do with the king this morning? So let's pray. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. Um, God, I thank you that, that, Father, even when we are prone to wander and prone to run from you, that, God, that you are a God that chases after us. Um, God, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts today. God, I pray, as, as the psalmist says, that, Lord, that you would just search our hearts. And, Father, see if there is any way in us, God, that is offensive to you. Um, God, I pray that you would draw us close to your side. This morning as I speak, Father, I pray that the, the words that I speak would not be my words, God, but they would be yours. And, and God, I thank you for new life today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your, your scripture to Matthew chapter 2, the slides are going to be up on the screen, which is really helpful for me. Um, about two or three years ago, I was hanging out with a good friend of mine named John, and, and he had to put on some reading glasses. And I laughed out loud. I mean, uncontrollably laugh, like you do not seriously need those, really. And it was funny, and y'all aren't laughing, but uh, it was really funny to me. Six weeks later, I was at the drugstore looking for reading glasses because um, God just did something with my eyes that no longer. And so at age 48, I, I genuinely feel like I'm somewhere between an eighth grader and a ninth grader in maturity. Um, but, you know. The body says something else. So let's, let's read the scripture this morning. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. And they were asking, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. It's interesting to me that uh, um, th th there's a lot in that passage, and we're going to unpack it today. But uh, Herod is an interesting guy to me. Uh, this morning, I, I want you to know some things about Herod. Uh, some of it's going to be interesting and some of it's going to kind of sound harsh. My, uh, my intention is not to judge Herod. Uh, all that Rome wanted from Herod, the job that he was given was just to keep Jerusalem quiet. 
Keep the area of Judea quiet. That's all they really wanted from him. It started with a group of of people called the Jewish zealots. They were uh, antagonistic towards Roman occupation. They didn't want anything to do with the Romans. And so they were little guerrilla bands that would act out. and, And Herod had to squelch the resistance and just keep everything quiet. In time, that would grow to be a different group of people called the Parthians. And, uh, they were in Palestine and, and basically what happened was Octavian and Antony of the Roman government and the Roman Senate, uh, declared Herod to be the King of the Jews and over the entire region and gave him the authority to go and and to squelch this, this rebellion and, and deal with problems. The problem with being given the title King of the Jews was that Herod was not a Jew. And so he was resented by the very people that he was over. And so he tried to take some hands into his own, some, some matters into his own hands to try to deal with the situation. One thing that he did was um, he married a, a Jewish woman that was an heiress to one of the, the powerful Jewish families. He was very, very clever. clever. He was a capable uh, warrior. He was an orator and, and a politician. In 19 BC, Herod, trying to gain the favor of the people, Uh, began the reconstruction of the temple that had been destroyed. He built theaters and racetracks and other structures to provide entertainment for the people. Herod was also cruel and merciless, though. Um, He was incredibly jealous uh, about his his power being taken from him. He, He lived in a constant fear that something was going to happen to remove him from his position. Uh, at one point, Herod had the high priest drowned so that he could have a funeral for the guy so that he could pretend to be crying and sad so that the people would see him as being compassionate. Okay. There, there's some issues going on. I don't know if you have the ability to see problems in people, but, uh, <laughs> just saying, okay. Um, uh, he, he married at least nine times in order to fulfill his lusts and his, his desire for power. Uh, he, he wanted to, to increase his political ties. Knowing that uh, no one would mourn his death on the day that, that he was going to be killed, he had all of the distinguished citizens in Jerusalem rounded up and imprisoned, and he gave the order that at the moment that he was killed, that all of these people be put to death. So at least there would be mourning in Jerusalem on the day that he died. Okay. So Herod the Great, when we look in verse three in the scripture and we see that, that he gave, uh, or verse two, he, he gives the order um, for, for the children of Bethlehem to be killed. It's in line with his character. Uh, he was deeply disturbed by these magi people showing up. I need you to understand a couple of things about Herod as we move forward. First of all, Herod's problems didn't begin with Herod. You see, you and I, in the, in the beginning of time, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. They chose to sin against God and cast off the authority of him in their life, telling them what to do and what not to do. And, and like our first parents, we have inherited this desire to rule our own lives. And Herod thought that he could rule his life well. In the occupied parts of our heart, sin sits on the throne. Sin wants to exercise control over certain areas of our lives, especially when it comes to the areas that we find pleasure or comfort or power in. And so like Herod, 
we tend to do whatever we can to, to protect the sinful desires of our heart. Uh, Jonathan Bickham tweeted a couple of weeks ago a, a, a John Keller quote, and, and it says this, Jesus cannot be just liked. His claims either make us kill him or crown him. And if you think about that, it's pretty powerful. How many of us in different areas of our life are bowing down to the pleasures that we have declared our allegiance to and have allowed to master us? If we're honest this morning, that is our king. And God's word is a personal, living, active, sharp word in our lives. And God is very specific when he talks to us about sin in our life. Um, there is a Herod in all of our hearts, and we have to deal with the sin in our lives. As I thought about this title, Herod the Great, um, I thought of Sean the Great. And it's not very great, okay? Um, I, I am daily faced with the struggles of my sin, just like you are. Um, if I could describe myself in two qualities, probably self-reliant and self-resourceful would be two words that would bubble to the top quickly. And, and I think that some people would look at that and admire that and say, man, that's, that's, those are great qualities. But when self-reliance and self-resourcefulness drives me from a dependence in God and a trust in him, Sean the Great looks pretty much like Herod the Great, pretty desperate. Um, the areas of my heart that every day are a battle zone. And, and it never fails to amaze me that I can try to talk myself into the idea that my ways are going to be better than God's ways. And there's, there's a quote that, uh, that I've ran across a couple years ago, and I, I want to read it here in just a minute. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But uh, there is a Herod in all of us, and we live in a land of great wealth. Just a few more chapters over in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about the, the story of the rich young ruler. And uh, the rich young ruler was convinced that his life could be good enough, that he could be pleasing to God, that he could somehow inherit eternal life. But he came to Jesus asking the very question, what more do I have to do? to gain eternal life. And Jesus had this discourse with him, and I won't go into it today, but he basically told him, go and sell everything that you have, then come and follow me. See, the, the, the rich young ruler was so insulated in his wealth that he didn't realize his desperation for God. And sin does that to us. The one Bible uh, theologian that I was, I was reading said that we have to get lost before we can get saved. And that's why Jesus let him walk away to realize the desperation of where he was at. This quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it, it's kind of theological, kind of wordy, but, but I hope it, it speaks to you this morning. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It, it withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light, and in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And this can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. 
Sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden must be openly made manifest. It's a hard struggle in us until sin is openly admitted. The expressed and acknowledged sin has completely lost all of its power. This morning, I want you, as you think about Herod the Great in this control in his life and his heart to the Lord, I want to ask you just to think about, is your heart much different? Are there fears in your life that drive you to not trust God? Is there sin in your heart that causes you to, to pull away from God and, and maybe even pull away from people that you isolate yourself, that you can rule the throne of your heart? And I would, I would encourage you this morning as we're talking about different hearts and different groups of people to man, express your sin to God today to confess your sin and breathe in the fresh air of being released from the power of sin in your life. The second group that I want to talk to you about this morning is, uh, is the religious leaders. An interesting bunch to me as I go through scripture and, and from time to time in different Bible studies, we, we read about the Pharisees and the, the chief priests and the high priests. Um, it's kind of indicting because I think that, that there's a tendency for us in a religious nature to, to draw near to heart attitudes that these guys had. And as we go over them, I, I don't want to miss something here about the religious leaders. Let me give you some lowdown on, on who they were and what was going on. First of all, in the, the nation of Israel, there were chief priests. They were kind of the top dog priests. There was a pecking order in those chief priests, and the highest slot was the high priest. Pretty easy to remember there, right? Um, the high priest throughout Scripture was a position that was appointed for life. And the main job of the high priest was to be right with God and in the day of atonement to go in and to represent the people in the Holy of Holies as the sacrifice was made for the people. In this day and age, though, during the time of Herod the Great and during the time of Matthew chapter 2, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the scribes were kind of the Pharisees of the people. They were the experts on the Jewish law, uh, kind of religious lawyers, if you would. Um, during this time, the whole entire system of the high priests and the scribes had become so politically corrupt that a high priest position was not a life appointment. They would come and go. They would be drowned and murdered, and a new guy would be placed in, in his place. Uh, the, the Pharisees were more interested in their political ability to gain power and prestige than they were to follow the, the words of God and, and be the representatives that they were supposed to be. And so this morning, I, I want you to grab onto this, that the religious leaders were indifferent towards God and were apathetic about what God was doing in their midst. Um, in verse two, we, we read that the Magi were going throughout Jerusalem and everyone they came into contact with, they were asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The, the scenario that you, you kind of kind of envision, the, the Greek there uses a verb that says that they were in just ongoing asking person to person, have you seen the king of the Jews? Where is he at? The king of the Jews. Do you know where the king of the Jews is? This baby that's been born throughout Jerusalem. And it caused problems. It deeply disturbed Herod and it bothered the, the, the Pharisees and, and the high priest. Um, 
they, they were shocked. The Magi were shocked when they got to Jerusalem to find that nobody cared. Nobody cared. Uh, as I thought about trying to relate this in an illustration this morning, there, there's a couple of thoughts that came to mind. This past year, there's a baseball team in, Tex, in Houston called the Houston Astros, okay? I don't know if you've heard about them or not. Um, they won something called the World Series this year. Uh, it's, it's kind of the, the big game in baseball. Uh, I stopped watching baseball somewhere in the 90s because they went on strike and it, it wounded me deeply and I had invested all this time in watching baseball and you know, was no longer able to invest the time catching up. And so when the Houston Astros won the World Series, um, social media erupted. And, and I have relatives that live in Houston and they don't watch baseball either, but that's all they could talk about on the phone when I called was, was the Houston Astros. And, and I wanted to be excited for the Houston Astros. I, I wanted to chime in, you know, yeah, way to go, Houston. But I just didn't care because I didn't have any history with them. And some of y'all are looking at me like, you horrible man, you. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'll move on to my second illustration. Uh, this past Friday night, I was, I was watching. I, I came to the Christmas musical. It was outstanding. Great job. And, and uh, I was trying to protect my voice. I was kind of sick this past week. And, and so I was, in my heart of hearts, I was wanting to be in Bastrop, Texas, watching. Uh, there was a football game going on. I maybe knew about it. Um, but I, I couldn't go. I, I needed to be here. I needed to be in a good place. And so uh, I realized after the musical that there was this movie screen next door in the children's building and, and that the, the Wimberley game was on the big screen and, and Mary was there and, and Ann was there and, and, and I found my way over there and praise God, he provided an opportunity to watch the Wimberley Texan game. And so we were sitting there and Ann was, was sitting to my right and uh, we're, we're watching the game and and there's this interception that takes place. And, and Ann goes, oh, ah, <laughs> and, and next thing I know, Ann is jumping up and down. And, and John's jumping down. And, and I'm jumping up and down. And, and we were excited about the turn in, in the game. The Magi showed up in Jerusalem, probably fully expecting every single person in Jerusalem to be. And there was nothing. And as they went around and asked, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Bible says he's going to be born in Bethlehem that way. Yeah. I think it just blew him away. Um, there is a point to this. So here, here we go with the point. Um, the religious leaders, their the very own scriptural confirmation that they had that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem did not lead them to seek out or to worship Jesus Christ. Even the unbelieving politicized, self-serving Jewish leaders recognized that God's word spoke clearly on the fact that the Messiah would be born and that he would come and rule Israel. But in their hearts, they had no room for this. As I read and studied for this, uh, I read about three different Roman historians that at the time were writing about the fact that, that there was a feeling among the Roman people, not even Christian people, that there was a feeling among the Roman people that something great was on the edge, that God was going to send a leader. They didn't know who or where or what that looked like, but even an unknowledgeable people sensed that something great was coming. 
If you remember John chapter four, the woman at the well, the Gentile woman, not a Jewish person, she told Jesus, she said, we know that the Messiah is coming. There was an expectation, but yet with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, their hearts were completely cold to the matter. And so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the challenge to, to examine our own hearts. When I, when I teach students, when I work with teenagers, it, it, one of the most important things for me to do as I teach and connect with them is to look at their eyes. Uh, I, I like a situation kind of like this where I can see the faces of everybody there because I can look at your eyes and see whether you're tracking with me or whether you're counting ceiling tiles. Uh, the first time that I preached, I was 19 years old and I was at First Baptist Church of Lytton Springs near Lockhart, Texas. There was about 40 people in the room that day and I think it wounded me deeply, but out of the 40 people, I think 20 were asleep that day. Uh, it's kind of challenging, but uh, you know, what are we passionate about? Are we passionate about Jesus? Because I think you can see it in people's eyes when they are. The religious leaders and the Pharisees, they weren't. Let me read to you an article. I'm just going to skim it. It's an article that I ran across. How many of you have cell phones? Raise your hand if you have a cell phone. Okay, very good. I expected you to have one. Um, let me ask you this question, and I'm going out on a limb here, so don't, don't hate me. Um, how many of you have smartphones? Okay, good. Good. This is an article that talks about phones, okay? So it's out of Network World. It's July 7th, 2016. Um, this is a contrast to a point that I'm trying to make, okay? The article in Network World says this. We touch our phones 2,617 times a day, the article says. Feeling a peculiar pull towards your phone, you're not alone. An obsession to touch phones is rampant. We are obsessed with our phones, a new study has found. The heaviest smart users, uh, smartphone users click, tap, swipe, or touch their phone 5,427 times a day, according to researchers. By every interaction, what we mean is a tap, a, a type, a, sw a swipe, or a click. That's what we're calling a touch here. Averaging out the numbers, that means that the heaviest users are touching their devices a couple of million times a year. Going on to say in the article, it says that the average user uses their phone for 145 minutes a day, and a heavy user uses their phones 225 minutes a day. The question is this. Are you more passionate and interested in your phone than you are Jesus Christ? Because that was the same indictment of the religious leaders, that they were more caught up with what was going on in their world than they were God in their midst. Every time we have a, a, a downtime moment, every time teenagers today have a second to just unplug, they pull out their phone and get on their phone. Um, we do this to keep our mind distracted. Uh, there was a girl in my youth group a few years back named Ariana. She was a seventh, eighth grade girl. Uh, she was constantly fiddling with her phone, constantly. You never saw this girl that she didn't have her phone. On it, texting, reading, Bible study, she was looking at the scripture, I'm sure, but uh, constantly had her phone. And, and I began to do this with students, and, and it, it wasn't in any way to mess with her head. It was just, just to see what would happen. I asked her one day, I said, Ariana, can I hold your phone? I, I just want to see it. 
and this look of crisis came across her face. It had a password on it. There was no way that I was going to look what was in the phone. All I wanted to do was hold the phone. And so as she gave me the phone and I just held it, there was a, you know, this kind of deal going on. It is unbelievable. Here's the deal. When we allow our hearts to grow cold to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we become callous and resentful to the desires that he has for our life. And we can misplace that Lordship in something as ridiculous as a phone. And I'm telling you, we don't want to let our hearts be there. The last group that I want to talk to you about this morning is the wise men. Uh, they were called the Magi. Uh, let's talk about these guys for a second. Who, who were these guys? I'm, I'm going someplace with this. This is obviously the winner of the day, so we want to focus on them. The first two, maybe not so much. But track with me here for just a second on this. Um, in order to understand who the, the wise men were, the wise guys, as I like to talk to, about them, uh, you have to go back in history 600 years to Israel, to Babylon, and to King Nebuchadnezzar. The, the word magi, as I said, means wise men. The title magi in its etymology connects them to the idea of magicians, but they weren't so much that. They, they were more like astrologers, okay? That's why there's a star in the story here, okay? But there was more to them than just that. If they were to put on their letter jacket, and this is student speak, but if they were to put on their letter jacket, there would be patches up and down the sleeves that were all state science, all state agricultural, math, um, astronomy, history. These guys were studied PhD, elite class kind of guys. Um, it was during the time that, that King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel that as he would go into Israel and into the area of Judea, as he would conquer a city, he would take the wisest and the brightest of the people that he conquered, and he would take them with him back to Babylon to be his advisors, okay? And so you may remember at one point in the Old Testament book of Daniel that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and this becomes a problem because he wants an interpretation to the dream and the wise men can't give it. And so he throws this out there that if you can't interpret it, I'm going to kill all of you guys. Okay. That causes some conflict when those kind of things happen in your life. Um, so up steps Daniel, man of God from Israel, believing in the one true living God. And he steps forth and God saves the day by giving him the interpretation. And Daniel turns around and saves the lives of the wise men by putting in a good word for them. And so this has the effect of gaining huge respect and trust for Daniel on the part of the Magi. From the prophet Daniel, the Magi come to know all about the one true living God. They come to know about the plans that he has for his people and that there is someday coming a glorious king, a Messiah that will deliver his people. And even after the Babylonian and the Persian captivity, there were Jews that remained in the region that intermarried with the people of that area. And the Jewish messianic influence remained strong all the way until the time of the New Testament. So who were these wise guys? History, historians tell us this, that there was never a Persian leader 
that was able to become king without mastering the scientific and the religious disciplines of the Magi, and then by being approved and crowned by them. These guys were literally kingmakers. They were the ones that endorsed, you're the king. Okay? So here's what we don't know about them. There's a lot that we do. There's a lot that we don't know about them. First thing is, we don't know how many of them that came to Jerusalem. We assume that there were three wise men because there was three gifts. We don't know how they got there. Um, we don't know their names. Despite Catholic tradition that names have been given to them, we really don't know. Scripture doesn't say. We, we don't know how they traveled there. We see pictures of them on camels, but we don't know, okay? Uh, they could have walked. I would presume that they took camels, but we don't know which country they came out of specifically. We know the region that they lived in, but we don't know specifically. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly where they started. The idea that we get is that these guys traveled, and this is the point that I'm trying to make this morning. These guys traveled about 700 miles to come to Jerusalem. Here's a point that I want you to get. Seeking Jesus every day in your life is going to cost you something. For these guys, whether it was a trip on camel or walking or whatever, 700 miles was a trip. I remember a, a friend of mine, Randy, that invited me one time to, to go mountain climbing with him. He, he wanted me to bring my youth group, but I tend to be a little leery about taking 65 students someplace that I've never been before. Might be smart, right? So uh, Randy told me, he said, let's go mountain climbing. You bring your two sons. At the time, Jonathan was about yay tall. Preston was about yay tall. Um, and so I was coming back from a beach trip in Corpus Christi, got out of that vehicle, got into another vehicle, and drove to Colorado to climb Mount Albert. I am not a mountain climber. I would love to talk with you about mountain climbing, but I am not knowledgeable in the mountain climbing area. Um, I will tell you this, Mount Albert is significant because it's what they call a 14er. It's a 14,000 foot elevation mountain. Uh, it was a six day trip for me. Uh, from, from start to finish, it was about a six day trip. The first night that I got to Colorado, which 24 hours I had been at sea level, the first night that I get there, um, I think I got out of the car and I was at about 8,000 feet, okay? Bags had already been packed grabbed my bags, and I walked about literally about five minutes from the place that we parked to where we were going to pitch camp. And by the time I walked five minutes, I was like, because <gasps> I was just out of air. Sucking wind is the phrase. Um, we, the next day, hiked to a base camp that we stayed at for the next day and a half at 10,000 feet. Stayed a day and a half there, um, had a six-hour quiet time that afternoon, and, and just spent some time acclimating to the altitude and spending time with God in, in the beauty of that. The, uh, the next morning, we woke up at 2 a.m. The deal with the 14,000-foot mountains is this, is that hailstorms are prevalent quite often. Thunderstorms during the summertime will come in in the middle of the day, and they come in quick. And so for us to make it to the summit, we had to get up about 2 a.m. And, and track up this, this deal. We got there about noon. On the way to the summit, there was this youth group that was with us from New Braunfels, oddly enough. And there was four or five girls that me and Jonathan and Preston were 
were tracking up this path alongside of, and uh, they were complaining. Uh, girls, okay, junior high girls. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying they were complaining. So uh, it sounded something like this. I didn't even want to come on this trip anyway. My parents made me come. I don't know why we have to do this. And it went on and on and on. And, and I'm going somewhere with this. This was one of the most challenging things that I had ever done in my life, climbing a 14,000-foot mountain. Uh, it was physically challenging. It was mentally challenging. I told my two sons, I said, we've got to do something. I said, we've got to get ahead of this or we've got to get behind this, but I can't do this with them. Okay. You ever felt that way? <laughs> there were financial costs to climbing the mountain. There were clothing things that I had to do. You had to dress in layers. You had to have sunscreen. You had to have lip balm to keep from getting blistered. There were drastic provisions that had to be made in order to be successful in this. Here's my point. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be the most challenging thing that you do. And there are going to be changes in your life that's going to change everything. And you're going to have to find people that you can run with, that you can go the distance with. Um, following Jesus is going to cost us, but it's worth it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Um, back to the Magi. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to the knees, they worshiped him. You know, in the scripture there, it talks about the fact that, that Jesus was in a house. I need you to understand that Jesus was no longer in the manger, that this was at some point later in his life. The, the wise men did not show up at the manger scene, okay? It was anywhere from a month later to within two years later that, that the, the wise men showed up at this house that, that Mary and Joseph were living in. And it says that they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. When they saw the star, the Magi were overjoyed and they fell to their knees and they worshiped him. Can you imagine the joy that they had after so much was invested in getting to that point and they found the king? And I think that in their hearts, they realized this isn't a king like any other king. Matthew's whole point of writing his gospel was to show the Jews, this is your king. And God stamped an authentic, authentication, yeah, that uh, stamp on it saying, this is the one. You know, as I studied this passage, I, I had a lot of questions. Um, one question would be this, why take them into Jerusalem? Why not just point A, point B, go straight there? Why even go into Jerusalem if God knew that Herod wasn't going to be receptive to it and God knew that the religious leaders weren't going to be receptive to it? Why take the Magi to Jerusalem? Why do the searching only to come out of Jerusalem, find the star, and then get where they were going? I had questions like, why does this whole childhood incident happen in Scripture? 
And I think that there are some reasons that, that we can glean from it. I think the first one and the reason I'm preaching on this today is that God shows us different hearts. Don't be like these guys, be like these guys. Um, God is a God that loves praise. I am blown away that he would take a group of men 600 years earlier in history, get them prepared, take them 700 miles across a region of territory to worship his son. That's pretty impressive. When I read in Revelation that there are angels that sit around the throne declaring day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is worthy of our worship. Today, we've looked at a story of two kings, Herod, an illegitimate king that did everything he could to, to take innocent lives and to protect his throne and save himself. And we contrast that with Jesus, the true king, who offers his own innocent life to establish his throne and save the lives of everyone else. We looked at a story today of two different kinds of hearts, hearts that are open and receptive to the king and hearts that reject him and are at best apathetic about him. The question is, what will you do with the king? Is your heart going to be like Herod's? Are you opposed to him and seeking to kill his desires and plans for your life? Are you like the religious leaders that you're apathetic and just really have grown cold to what the Lord wants to do? Or will you be like the Magi this morning and be a group of people that have heard and believed, a group that's, that makes sacrifices to come to search for the king, that sees and experiences what God is doing, a group that pauses and worships him? The last thing that I want to share with you before I'm done this morning is... Uh, there's a, a song that I like a lot. I listen to it on my phone a lot and in, in the car a lot. Erin has got to the point that she does not like the song at all. Okay. I think when you get to like the 800th time that you've heard it, she's ready to move on to the next one in the playlist, but, uh, I, I can't get enough of it. It's a song by Carrie Job and, uh, it's, it's called forever. And there's a interlude, Dan, I don't know if, what an interlude is, but it's, it's in the very middle of the song and it's a, uh, a thing that's read, but, uh, man, it, it, it resonates with my heart because it describes my condition and my feelings about the King to the T. So I want to share it with you. I'm just going to read it and then I'll be done. Think about this as we go. My heart extols the Lord and blesses his name forever. He has won my heart, captured my mind and bound them both together. He has defeated me in my rebellion and conquered me in my sin. He has welcomed me into his presence, completely invited me in. He has made himself the object of my sight, flooding me with mercies in the morning and drowning me with grace in the night. My God, his grace is remarkable. His mercies are innumerable. His strength is impenetrable. He is honorable, accountable, and favorable. He is unsearchable yet knowable, indefinable yet approachable, indescribable yet personal. He is beyond comparison, further than imagination, constant through the generations, king of every nation, a savior who is both worthy and deserving of my praise. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, giving nothingness for formation. And by his word, he sustains in the power of his name. 
for he is before all things and over all things he reigns. Holy is his name. So praise him for his life, the way he persevered in strife, the humble son of God becoming the perfect sacrifice. Praise him for his death, that he willingly stood in our place, that he lovingly endured the grave, that he battled our enemy and on the third day rose in victory. He is everything that was promised. Praise him as the risen king. Let your voice sing, for one day he will return, and we will finally be united with him, our Savior for eternity. Praise his name forever.